get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today's episode comes to us courtesy of a request from a listener. Neil asked me to cover this. And to start off, I want to just talk about a certain myth. There's a legend in Silicon Valley that eBay, the auction website that was one of the notable survivors after the dot-com crash, was founded because of Pez dispensers. The legend is a pretty charming one, and it tells the story about Pierre Omidyar. He is the son of Iranians who had moved to France to pursue higher education. And Pierre's fiancée, Pamela, was a fan of Pez dispensers, those little plastic candy dispensing toys that frequently take the form of licensed characters like Mickey Mouse or Batman or hundreds of others. Pam was having trouble finding fellow enthusiasts in the San Francisco area. She had previously lived in the Boston area, and she knew a lot of other collectors over on the East Coast, and so Pierre designed a website meant to allow people to post items they wished to sell and auction them off to the highest bidder, which is a cute story, but it's not true. It was actually all a PR thing that was made up to kind of give eBay this sort of charming history. So today we are going to explore the full story behind eBay, how it came to be, and how it survived when so many other websites failed. Our story does begin with Pierre Omidyar, the man who would build the first incarnation of eBay. He was born in Paris, France in 1967, and when he was six years old, his family immigrated to the United States. They moved to the Baltimore area, and Pierre's father took up a urology residency at Johns Hopkins University. In school, Pierre was known to kind of sneak off during gym class in order to use a teacher's TRS-80 home computer. This was an old Tandy Radio Shack computer, thus the TRS name, though it had a rather unfortunate nickname, not just at uh, Pierre's school, but worldwide. It was sometimes kind of affectionately referred to as the Trash 80. Pierre taught himself how to program in BASIC, that is the basic programming language. He was fascinated with computers and with programming in general. In middle school, he lived for a short while in Hawaii and then returned back to the East Coast. When he returned to Washington, D.C. for high school, he began working on Apple II computers, and he learned to program in Pascal, which was a big step up from BASIC. He even landed a gig at his high school, computerizing the card catalog for the library. And he graduated high school and enrolled in Tufts University, which is outside of Boston, and he majored in computer science. And that's where he met his future wife, Pamela, who was studying biology. Pierre was a devotee of Apple, and he eschewed the IBM-compatible PCs that were beginning to dominate computer labs. So he didn't really have any desire to go into the computer lab, even though his major was computer science. Instead, he preferred to work on a Macintosh computer, and he created a programming utility as an exercise. In his junior year, he began looking for a potential job as a Mac programmer, and he applied to a company called Innovative Data Design, which offered him an internship based off his application and the Mac utility he had created. 
That led to a full-time position, and Pierre took a semester off to get more experience in the programming world. So he leaves school for a short while and works for a semester in the private sector. He returned to Tufts for another semester, but then transferred to the University of California, Berkeley, to finish out his undergraduate degree, and he moved out west. Pamela, his girlfriend-slash-fiancée, continued her studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She had already earned a bachelor's degree in biology and now was studying plant molecular genetics. Smart lady. Pierre then went to work for a company called Claris. Interesting little side note, Claris was a subsidiary of Apple. So I covered this a little bit in the Apple story about how the company was trying to deal with uh, software for its Macintosh line. It had formed Claris in 1987 when Apple needed to devote resources to creating updates to aging software packages like MacDraw and MacProject. Pierre was a Mac programmer working for Apple, sort of, by way of a subsidiary, there was a sweet deal that was on the horizon. Claris was poised to spin off from Apple and hold its own initial public offering, or IPO. Employees who had a stake in the company would end up making a lot of money if the IPO went well, so things were looking up. And this is generally how initial public offerings go. You normally have employees who have some sort of ownership in the company, and when it goes public... They end up getting a reward of uh, stock in the company. And if the IPO goes really well, then the stock's value increases and thus you can end up becoming wealthy overnight. But then in 1990, Apple decided it was not going to spin off Claris after all. And the company would remain a subsidiary under Apple. That decision prompted the company president, that is Claris's company president, to leave Claris And that initiated something of an exodus of employees throughout 1990 and 91, including Pierre. He decided he was going to leave the company and try something new. So the year was 1991, and Pierre was partnered with some friends to launch their own business. They decided they were going to try and create their own company. And this one was called Inc. Development Corporation. This company specialized in programming software for pen-based computers, that is, light pens as an input device. And specifically, they were developing for the PenPoint operating system from a company called Go Corporation. Now, at the time, Pierre was banking on the pen input system to become the next big thing in computing. For one thing, using a pen is at least seen as being far more intuitive than using a keyboard. Same sort of thing as touch interfaces with uh, screen-based designs like, like tablets and smartphones. That was the reasoning anyway, but it turned out the team was way ahead of their time on this bet. And it just never really took off. But fortunately, they had not put all of their eggs in the pen computer basket. They had also started to develop software for the burgeoning online market. In 1992 and 93, when it became pretty clear the pen-based computing thing wasn't going anywhere, the internet was starting to get a lot of buzz. And the team rebranded their company and called it eShop. Lowercase e, big S. One thing that was interesting about eShop was that it was not directly connected to the Internet. You would not log on to the Internet and then use something like Google or some other web search program to go over to eShop and then peruse the virtual aisles. 
It was a network, but one that you would have to access directly through a Windows application that dialed out through CompuServe and Sprint network links. So in other words, instead of going to the internet, you were essentially dialing directly into this service. That made it closer to something like a bulletin board system from back in the day. Multiple users could be on at a single time, but only through that direct connection. So it was not yet an internet shop. Pierre figured that the internet was really the future. He he figured this is really where things are going to go. And he was a little frustrated with how reluctant his partners were to bring eShop fully online. And so he left the company in 1994, but he still held on to a stake in the company. He still had some ownership, which ended up being a really good decision for him. Because in 1996, which was a year after eBay would launch, I'm just skipping ahead for a second here, Microsoft would acquire eShop. And that acquisition was done in part through stocks, meaning Microsoft would grant stocks to people who shared ownership in eShop. And they would get a certain number of Microsoft shares. That turned Pierre into a millionaire overnight. He had the freedom to work on whatever he liked at that point. And of course, by then eBay was already a thing, although it wasn't called that yet. Anyway, the other thing he ended up working on after he left eShop was uh, a company called General Magic that was founded by Bill Atkinson, Andy Hertzfeld, and Mark Porat. Now, Hertzfeld and Atkinson were two of the members of the original Macintosh team. They actually designed the original Macintosh And Pierre was going to get to go work for the men who designed the computer he had grown to love so much and the one that he had cut his teeth on when he was really getting serious about programming. So he was pretty excited about it. General Magic was developing small handheld computing devices that were sort of a predecessor to personal digital assistants or PDAs, if you remember those. And PDAs in turn were sort of the predecessors for smartphones. Pierre's job was to kind of act as a liaison between General Magic and third-party programmers. So he was kind of helping third-party programmers who wanted to build software for this platform. The platform was called Magic Cap, and the company had created this in an effort to get more software developed for the technology in general. So in other words, you had uh, Pierre standing there as kind of an aide, someone who could give expertise to people who wanted to develop software for this brand new platform. And uh, he was deriving a lot of pleasure out of that. In his spare time, he was brainstorming ways to leverage the Internet. And by the mid-90s, everyone was pretty sure the Internet was going to change everything. But no one had really cracked how that was going to happen yet. It was still an early adoption period for the Internet, and e-commerce hadn't quite taken off yet. And this is when the story of Pamela and the Pez dispensers would come into play uh, when it was dev- when it was presented as eBay's actual past. But while that could have potentially played a part in Pierre's brainstorming if it had been true, the actual truth of the matter was way more complicated and messy. And I'll explain how in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So Pierre Omidyar, who had recently left eShop and now was working for General Magic, would occasionally take on consulting or freelance work. So he created a sole proprietorship business, and he called it Echo Bay Technology Group because he thought the name sounded cool. He didn't actually live anywhere near any place called Echo Bay. 
he tried to register the domain echobay.com, but discovered that it was already taken, so he couldn't have it. So he decided to register ebay.com instead, as that was readily available. And this was in early 1995. There was no marketplace on the site just yet. There was no eBay auction site, so the name actually came before the business. At the time, eBay.com was sort of a catch-all site containing Omidyar's interests. He had information about his consulting gigs on there, so you could hire him based off that site. But he also had a section about the Ebola virus. It was an information page about Ebola that had links to news items. The website contained pages dedicated to a biotech company that employed his fiancée, Pamela, and he also had a page dedicated to the Alumni Association of Tufts University because Pamela was president of that association. So in other words, eBay.com was sort of a hodgepodge of web pages. And really, only Pierre and his fiancée were the common connectors among all the different pages. It was actually really reminiscent of a lot of early websites. If you were online during the early days of the web, you would frequently encounter early websites created by people that had a web page devoted to each of their interests, and there'd be no real common thread between the interests except for the fact that one person had all of them. That happened a lot in the early days, and eBay.com started out that way. Pierre had also been thinking a lot about free markets, because a few years earlier, in 1993, he had decided to invest in the company 3DO. That was a video game console company. I've talked about 3DO in the past. It was one of those consoles that launched, it made a big impact, and it was incredibly expensive, and it didn't stick around for very long. But it still was pretty interesting, and Pierre was really kind of uh, fascinated by it. So he ended up investing in it back in 1993. Omidyar put in an order to buy stock with his brokerage firm. The opening price when 3DO was holding its initial public offering, was supposed to be $15 per share. But by the time Omidyar's uh, order was processed, the stock price had already gone up by 50%. So he was buying it at a more expensive price than he had originally intended. Now, he was still able to sell his stock off at a profit anyway later on, but it got him to thinking, how was this fair? Because privileged buyers were able to get hold of shares at the $15 price point well before they would become available to the general public. You had organizations that could buy stock before the IPO officially launched. And he felt like this was really unfair. When the public finally gets a chance to buy stock, the price would have already grown, which means they would see smaller profits than the bigwigs who were able to get in early because they had really good connections. So Pierre started to think about auctions and how they operate. He had not really attended auctions, but he liked the concept behind them. Because at an auction, the potential buyers decide what they are willing to spend on any given item or service. If someone else wants that item or service more, they will pay more, assuming they have the funds to do so. So if a seller sets an opening bid price that's at too high a level, no one's going to bid. So it's a free market approach that felt fair to Pierre. You could place your bid, and if you got outbid, you could decide if it was worth increasing your bid again to stay in the auctions. No one would be able to beat out anyone else just because of their connections. Really, if someone has deeper pockets and a real desire to own something, they could outbid everybody else. But 
you know, you would usually weigh how much is the thing worth versus how much am I willing to pay for it. He got to work coding in an effort to build out a website that would allow people to post items for sale and support an auction environment. And he worked all over the Labor Day weekend. And on Labor Day itself, in 1995, he launched it under his ebay.com site. But it was not called ebay.com itself. It was called Auction Web. So it was one site under ebay.com. I believe it was ebay.com slash aw if you wanted to go there directly. Upon its launch, it was a bare-bones service. It was mostly blue text against a gray background. There were only three things you could do on the site. You could list a new item for sale, you could view the items that were available, and you could place a bid on an item. Omidyar supported the service as a hobby. He had no real plans to make it a business. He promoted the site on various news groups, but many of them required a moderator to review a post before listing a post, and everyone was on vacation because it was the long weekend. By the end of Labor Day weekend, Auction Web had received precisely zero outside visitors. But again, this was a hobby, so Omidyar wasn't really discouraged. He was just continuing on with his day. Word did gradually get out. In fact, it didn't get take very long at all. By the middle of September, people were talking about it. And people began to list items for auction on the site. According to the book The Perfect Store, Amidiar visited a news group at misc, that is M-I-S-C dot foresale dot non-computer, and gave a complete rundown on all the non-computer items that were currently up for auction, along with their current bids over at auction web. And here is a list of the things that you could have bid on during that week. Superman Metal Lunchbox, 1967. Used. Good condition. The current bid was at $22. Autographed Marky Mark Underwear. Current bid was at $400. Autographed Elizabeth Taylor Photo. Current bid was at $200. Autographed Michael Jackson Poster. Current bid at $400. A toy powerboat, late 50s, early 60s. Current bid, $60. A Hubley 520 cast iron hook and ladder truck. Current bid, $300. Collector's multicolor reflection hologram. Current bid, $5,000. A check vase. Current bid, $25. And cobalt clear cut glass rose bowl. Current bid, $25. That was the sum total of all the non-computer elements, all the non-computer items that were uh, available on eBay.com at that point. eBay.com slash AW, that is. But none of those items would be the first one actually purchased off of Auction Web. According to the company's own history, the very first item ever bought at auction at eBay.com slash AW was, drumroll please... A broken laser pointer. A laser pointer that was, as advertised, broken. What's more, we know who bought it. The name of the person who purchased this broken laser pointer was Mark Fraser. And I've seen some articles that suggested he was a collector of broken laser pointers. In fact, according to at least one story, Pierre Omidyar actually called up Mark Fraser personally and said, Hey, you won this auction. But did you know that this is for a broken laser pointer? And supposedly, Frazier responded, I collect them. But 
That's not what Mr. Frazier has said in interviews following this event. According to a video Mark Frazier appeared on as part of eBay's 20th anniversary celebration, the story goes like this. Frazier was traveling as part of his job and watching a lot of presentations. And at some of these presentations, the people were using laser pointers, and Frazier thought they were pretty neat. So he wanted one. But at the time, they cost more than $100, and he really didn't have that kind of money to spend on something as frivolous as a laser pointer. So, being of an engineering mindset, he decided he would make his own. He got hold of a laser diode, and he designed a circuit and built his first prototype. But there was a problem. The light wasn't focused in a tight beam like a laser, and that's when he heard about auction web. He popped on there and he saw that someone was selling a broken laser pointer, and he figured he could get the broken pointer and use it to complete his own DIY project. And so he made a bid, and he won the auction for $14.83. So it's not quite as ridiculous a story as some outlets made it out to be. One week after Omidyar had shared that list of non-computer items that were available on Auction Web, he had an update. And that included a warehouse in Idaho that had an opening bid set at $325,000. In addition to crazy things, Auction Web was picking up traffic. Word was spreading throughout the end of 1995, and by the close of the year, just a few months after launch, the site was receiving thousands of visitors and items had received tens of thousands of bids. This ended up being a problem, however. Amidiar was still operating Auction Web as a hobby. He was happy to have it hosted under his eBay.com site with his other interests. He was paying about $30 a month in hosting fees for all the sites collectively. But Auction Web was starting to get serious traffic. And Amidiar's hosting service, a company called Best, was complaining that this increased traffic was slowing down their network. So they told Amidiar they were going to transition him to a commercial account which would cost $250 a month, not $30 a month. Amidiar tried to contest this decision. He said, Auction Web isn't a business. And at that time, it really wasn't. It was a marketplace, but it w- there was no way to make money from it. There was no cut of sales going on, but Best was not going to play ball. And Amidiar had a tough decision to make. He was going to have to either walk away from this community that was starting to grow knowing that he couldn't really afford to pay $250 a month just to support a hobby. He he had not yet come into all that money from the uh, acquisition of eShop. That hadn't happened yet. So he was either going to have to walk away or he was going to have to charge users for auction web. But how would he do it? Well, I'll explain in a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Amidiar didn't want to discourage people from using Auction Web, and he wasn't crazy about the idea of charging people a fee to use it. So his solution was to create a system in which people could view and list items online for free. There was absolutely no charge to shop around or put an item up for auction. The fee would only come in after an auction ended with a successful buyer. At that stage, Auction Web would take a percentage of the final bid. For bids that were less than $25, Auction Web would take a cut of 5%. For auctions that ended above $25, the cut would be 2.5%. And Omidyar kind of came up with this on his own. 
Sellers began to send in money after successful auctions. Sometimes it came in the form of a check. Sometimes a Midyar would literally receive cash or change in envelopes. It wasn't terribly elegant, but it was working. In fact, it was working so well that he was making more than the $250 it cost in hosting fees. So AuctionWeb was officially a profitable business. By February 1996, the site was doing pretty well. Amidiar was smart enough to realize he didn't have the experience or business education to run AuctionWeb successfully on his own, so he was spending nearly all his time either making sure the site wasn't going to crash or building out new features. So he looked around for someone who could join the company and help him out by taking on a leadership role. He reached out to a friend of a friend named Jeff Skull. Skull had attended the University of Toronto and earned a degree in engineering before he went on to grad school at Stanford and earned an MBA. In between undergrad and graduate school, he launched two companies successfully, and so he was doing pretty well. Amidiar had reached out to Skull earlier in 1995 to ask him to work on AuctionWeb, and at that time, Skull turned down the offer. He didn't think people were ready to use the internet for commerce. He then went on to work for a newspaper chain, but when he did that, he saw that the newspaper business was terrified of the internet and its potential impact on the classifieds business. A website could post the same sort of stuff as a classifieds ad without the restriction for space and with dynamic pricing. Skull rethought his decision and in February 1996, he began to do some consulting work for AuctionWeb. Amidiar, meanwhile, tried to instill in his users a sense of community. And in fact, that community began to coalesce. Some have even gone so far as to call eBay one of the first social networking platforms. Amidiar was still running the show all by himself at this point with some consulting work from Skull. And when problems popped up, he was the only point of contact. His email address was on the website. He had to deal with the site issues as well as disputes between buyers and sellers. And so, in an effort to make things run a little more smoothly and to help remove himself from the equation just a little bit, he created the feedback forum for AuctionWeb. To participate, a user would first need to register with the feedback forum. The purpose of the forum was to provide feedback to the community about various buyers and sellers. Amidiar encouraged people to praise those who practiced good habits in buying or selling and to warn others for those few who might be taking advantage of the platform or just behaving in a poor way. He also reminded users that humans don't always make the right choices and it's not always a malicious or intended action. So in other words, they should try to be understanding and sympathetic before leaping to the conclusion that they were getting scammed on purpose. In the forum, users could rate one another. The rating system was pretty basic. You could give a user a plus one, meaning the experience you had with that user, whether you were buying from them or selling to them, was a positive experience. Or you could give a negative rating, indicating something did not go well. Perhaps someone failed to pay or failed to send an object. Or you could just go with neutral if there was nothing remarkable to say about the experience. They could also expand upon that rating by writing a comment and explaining the situation further. The rating would become a tag for each user. Whenever that user interacted with the site by listing an item or placing a bid, their rating would appear next to their name. 
This gave everyone else a quick glance at who was trustworthy and who was not. And if your rating got too low, too low being minus four points, although that was not actually uh, explained or communicated to the community, then Omidyar would drop the ban hammer on you. You would become known as a not a registered user or NARU, N-A-R-U. The site also introduced a bulletin board system designed to help answer questions in the community, such as what shipping methods would be the most economical or reliable, and how do you handle situations in which something has gone wrong. The community itself would respond to those messages, so you'd have users answering the questions of other users. It was almost like AuctionWeb had built out its own customer service department, but instead of using employees, it was the fellow users of the site who were doing all the communicating. Six months after AuctionWeb went live, and just a few months after Omidyar had instituted the fee for successful auctions, the site was pulling in about $5,000 per month. In June 1996, Omidyar hired on Chris Agarpo to come in to Omidyar's home and essentially open up envelopes filled with fees. Because remember, these were often small amounts, sometimes just a few cents at a time. And Agarpo collected the funds and he would deposit them into the business's account. So essentially he was coming in twice a week, opening up envelopes, gathering up money, and going to the bank to deposit it. By the end of June, AuctionWeb was generating $10,000. And so many people were using the site and bidding on items. Remember, this is just a small percentage of those bids. So $10,000, that that represents a lot of stuff going on. So it was beyond anything Amidiar had hoped for when he first launched this hobby, and it changed from hobby to full-time job. He was making more money overseeing the site than he was in his day gig. So he quit his day gig. In July 1996, Amidiar convinced Jeff Skull to step up as the first president of AuctionWeb, and in August, Skull would quit his gig at the newspaper chain to focus solely on the company that would become eBay. Now keep in mind, this is also the year that Microsoft would acquire eShop and turn Amidiar into a millionaire, but this was just the beginning of riches for the French-Iranian immigrant. I have a lot more to say about that journey, and we will continue this story in the next episode. I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed the early days of eBay. The story gets way crazier as we go on. So I hope you join me for the next episode. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. Send me an email. The address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or draw me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 